following the service today. All right. If you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to open or click or swipe to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're back in this letter, letter that Peter wrote the church. We started walking through 1 Peter back in September, and we, we said then that this was a letter that, that Peter wrote to a number of churches in, in the kind of the Middle East and Turkey-type area, what we would call Turkey today. If you need a Bible, just give Clarence a wave there. He's got some extras. And it was a letter that he was writing to the church uh, in, uh, really in how to deal with persecution. This was, was a new, fledgling, budding church that was meeting opposition really at every turn. Sound a little bit familiar maybe today as well? And so he wrote this letter to the churches. These, he names a number of them in, in chapter 1, verse 1, to encourage them to stick with it. To, in, in, to teach them how to, to live in light of suffering, to live in light of a world that opposes them, and to, to, to stay with Jesus. And so we're, we're coming back into that, uh, that letter now. Uh, we will get into chapter 4, but let me, let me open our time with this. There's a book written by a guy named John Updike called Pigeon Feathers. And, and he writes this book, and it has a, a, a jarring description of what awaits us at the end of life. Now, the author is presenting this view rooted in naturalism, which means there's no God, we're here by an accident, and we're just gone at the end. And so it, it, it suggests that human history is, is accidental, and therefore we have no purpose, direction, or ultimate goal. So what does the end of life bring? Here's how he describes it in this book. Without warning, David was visited by an exact vision of death. A long hole in the ground, no wider than your body, down which you were drawn while the white faces receded. You try to reach them, but your arms are pinned. Shovels pour dirt in your face, and there you will be forever, in an upright position, blind and silent. And in time, no one will remember you, and you will never be called. A strata of rock shift, your fingers elongate, and your teeth are distended sideways in a great underground grimace, indistinguishable from a strip of chalk. And the earth tumbles on, and the sun expires, and unaltering darkness reigns where there once were stars. Naturalism's vision of the end is one of death and despair. Now Peter, in the section we're going to get to, is writing about end-time ethics as well. He's going to present an alternative vision of the end that's, that's equally jarring to the people he was writing to, but a lot more hopeful. And remember who's writing this. Peter was not just some great saint. If we look back, we track him back. He was the first pope and all the things, but he was a fisherman. You know, basic education, uh, probably wasn't, he, he wasn't a rabbi, so he didn't make it into the Jewish schools beyond a few years. He was just a, 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 an ordinary, uneducated, hardworking fisherman but now he's turned into a preacher, preached a couple of the greatest sermons ever. And he has come to believe that, that all history is purposeful. It does, in fact, have meaning, and it's heading towards God's intended goals. It's not just an unending darkness that we're headed to, but rather there, there is eternal life coming, and the eternal reign of a risen Jesus is coming. And the last verse in our text this morning summarizes this. Look at verse 11 here. It says, goes through the saints so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. 
That's, that's our hope. If we follow Jesus, that's our hope for the end, is that Jesus will come and the glory of God and the reign of Jesus will be here forever and ever and ever and ever. Now it's fair to ask, how did this first century ordinary blue-collar fisherman come to believe this? What happened? Clearly something happened to make him think this. Well, Peter's understanding of the end is rooted in his witnessing the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. About a chapter earlier in this letter, he wrote that he holds the reign of to, he holds to the reign of Christ, uh, the one who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers all subject to him. So the Christian idea of the eternal reign of Jesus is based on Jesus' resurrection as a real thing that really happened. And so in Jesus, we can see that God has a plan, both for history and for humanity. But Peter holds more than just the reign of Jesus in his hands. He looks for that Jesus will return as well. He proclaims that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, one day we too will be raised from the dead and will stand before him and will give an account of our lives to him. One writer says this, this uniquely Christian conception of history is the most elevating and yet jarring teaching ever. It announces that in Christ the end has come. He has already been crowned king. God's plans are now fixed. And if, in fact, Peter is correct, then the only thing keeping Jesus from returning today is God's gracious design to bring more men and women under the authority of Christ through repentance and faith. Now, Peter's got all of these things swirling in his mind as he gets to this section of his letter, and he opens this section in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, with the words, The end of all things is at hand. It's, it's near, he says. According to the Bible, the end has started. The, the, the clock is ticking. With Jesus conquering death, the final stages of history have been started. So the question for us is, so what? What do we do about this? How do we, how do we live in light of that end? Well, Peter is about to give us four things to hold on to as we consider how to spend our time. So let me read the passage, and then we'll look at them each one at a time. And let me just say at the outset, this is not just a laundry list for you to add to your to-do list of every day and be like, okay, Sean's going to give me more things to do so that I can be good enough. That's not it at all. Let me encourage you. You cannot be good enough. It's done. It's over. That's fixed. Welcome. It's great to have you visiting. This is, hope you're feeling built up. And <clears throat> but because of Jesus' work in our lives, because of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts, we can claim Jesus' goodness. Let me read for us 1 Peter chapter 4. Pick it up at verse 7. The end of all things is near, he says. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Did you catch the list of four there? It maybe seemed like there were a couple more, but there's four main ones we're going to look at. They were this. First, be, be sober-minded or be self-controlled. 
Show constant and sincere love. Show hospitality to one another. And finally, serve one another. Now, it's interesting. We could take this lesson, and last week we did the first part of chapter 4. If you weren't with us, we were, we were there. We can take this list and look at the list of the way Peter describes people who don't follow Jesus from verse 3 and 4. Let me read that for us. So this is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. There's already been enough time spent doing what the Gentiles, those who aren't following Jesus, choose to do. And then he lists what they choose to do. Carrying on in unrestrained behaviors, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, or being sexually doing whatever you want, carousing and lawless idolatry. And they're surprised that they don't join you in the same flood of wild living, and so they slander you. There's kind of four things there that even that, that, that Peter points to. They, they, they give themselves to drunkenness instead of sober-mindedness. It's a contrast here, right? They give themselves to lawless activity, doing whatever they feel is right, instead of living out a sincere love rooted in faith in Jesus. They give themselves to their sexuality however they feel like they want to in that time, rather than loving one another and showing hospitality. And they give themselves to slandering and maligning other people instead of serving one another. That's a pretty big different differentiation there, isn't it? A pretty big gap between those two lists. See, if we take Peter's teaching to heart, that, that old list is done. It's over. It's passed away. And something new is coming. So since Jesus is king, if he is our king, there are four new things for each of us to go after and give all of our lives to, give all of our strength to. And the first is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. It's been said that the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that the former controls his temperament while the latter is controlled by it. Now, Peter might agree with that. He's saying here is to, to be clear-headed. Don't be like so many who are constantly looking for an escape. There's a, a, you know, a rock and roll song not too long ago that says, everybody's working for the... Phew, thank you. Here's... Thank you. So, see, I like stepped out in like bold confidence in the f and actually sang the line in the first service and then it was like quiet. I was like, you all, you all know the song. It's fine. Just help me out here. He's saying, don't be like those who are just like, if I can just get through my 40 or 50 or 60 hours of work this week, I can just finally just shut down and be done with this part of my life and just do what I want. Don't try to, 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 to remove yourselves. Avoid the reality that we're living. And this, this is one more Pitch for Freedom session. This is really one of the early lessons that we'll get to probably either this week or next to recognize the ways that we're trying to escape this life by different patterns of behavior, whether that's going after food or drink or relationships or social media or work and work and work or all the things to try to escape part of our life. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Don't escape. Be clear-headed. Be clear-minded. Identify those things that you're, you're trying to use as escape. Get, away, get, get rid of those things. Don't just shut down. Don't just veg out. It's, it's, it's okay to rest and relax. That's fine. But don't just mindlessly veg out and watch Netflix night after night after night or pour into Euler's blog after Euler's blog and the tra trade deadline. If it can just pass and I can stop paying attention to it, that would be great. All the things. Think about what you're doing with your life. And Peter, the value of this, Peter says, is for the sake of your prayers. Our desire to be self-controlled, sober-minded, and clear-headed is 
so that we can pray. When my mind is, is filled with other things, when it's distracted by anxiety and worry and work and social media and kids and all, all the things, when it's just racing, you know what I cannot hear? The still small voice of God saying, Sean, I love you. Sean, I'm with you. Sean, I've got you. Part of our maturing in faith process is growing in our ability to communicate and hear from God. And this will ebb and flow. You may have great days, weeks, maybe even months, and then you might go a long time where just like, God, I can't even, I don't even know if you're speaking to me anymore. Let me tell you, he is. We aim for clear-headed growth. Be sober-minded, be self-controlled. Peter kind of uses some gardening language in here as well to connect the end of time with Jesus' suffering as well, which is really the, the subject of much of this letter and this section as well. So the, the, the time we're living in, the end is near. He says, the time we're living in, there, there is evil around us. Our, our enemy, the devil, is active. And so our minds need to be clear and ready. The second thing he says in, in verse 8 is to, to strive for sincere love. He says, above all, Keep on loving one another earnestly or sincerely, since love covers a multitude of sins. There's a couple of pieces I want us to see here. Note the word earnestly or sincerely. This isn't like, I know that Sean tells me I need to be kind to my neighbors. So fine, I'll wave as I drive into my garage and close the door, and then I never have to deal with them again. Right? I know. This isn't that. This is like striving to actually have a real, sincere, genuine love for other people and it's hard sometimes sometimes people are just like the worst and that's me too right there are plenty who would say that about me but the call is to love earnestly this is one of the things that that's in the the list of the fruit of the spirit right love it's the first one so we can't again i can't muscle up love for my neighbors i can barely muscle up love sometimes for for myself, for my family, or all, all the things, right? But, but the Holy Spirit at work within us will grow this. Earnestly love one another, sincerely love one another, which is the other piece, one another. You can't obey this without being in community. Love is, is relational, and so much of this letter, Peter has pushed us towards community, saying you can't be alone in this. You have to be around people, and he continues here. One thing I want us to remember is that Peter, I've already mentioned that once this morning, is Peter is writing this letter to a number of churches. It's not like he has one specific group in mind and he's writing to this church and says, love each other. It's not like it's saying, Trinity, you guys here, 11 o'clock service, love each other, care for each other. No, he knows good and well this letter is going to go from church to church to church to church. I don't know if he had an idea that we would be reading it still 2,000 years later, but at least he had in that time that it would, it would go around the churches and he would be telling each one of them, love each other, love each other. This letter's going to go to them next. Love them too when you take it to them. And not just because I tell you to, do it earnestly because you want to. This love is both corporate, our church should love other churches, and individual, right? We want to love one another. Let me ask you this. Do you realize, if the Bow Valley is your home, that Trinity and Crossway Church, who is meeting up the hill, and the Cairn Church that will meet in their building a little bit later, and Banff Park Church down the road, 
and Banffville Gospel Church, also down the road, and St. Michael's over here, and St. George's over there, and on and on it goes. We're on the same team. We're on the same team. We, we are trying to help people meet Jesus, all of us. And I've only listed those because I know the leadership there, and I know their hearts for people. We're on the same team, trying to grow the kingdom of God. I know, you probably know this too, this is maybe isn't news to you, but I know that we have people here who have attended elsewhere and then come here. And I know that there are people that are attending elsewhere that maybe by the strength of my preaching are no longer here, right? And that's okay. In my, in my usual moments, I'm okay with that. Sometimes my earthly competition stirs up a little bit, but I'm not threatened by that. The best of me is not threatened by that. There are people here, I know, maybe not in this room, but in the morning for sure, that have been sent here by another pastor. They showed up and I was like, you know what? I think Trinity would be a better place for you. It would be a better fit. And I know that there are people at other churches that I've said the same thing to. They've come here and I was like, you know what? You live across the street from Bath Park. Why are you driving here? Because we're on the same team. We are called as churches to love one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I know that that phrase has been taken and pulled and misapplied many ways, like it's easy to do with much of our Bible, but this can be misunderstood as saying, just love people, don't worry about their sin. That, that's not this. Only Jesus covers our sins. So what is Peter saying here? There's an analogy that came across. I, I think it's helpful. It says, love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket chokes the air from one who's caught on fire. Let me say that one more time. Love takes the oxygen out of sin in the same way that a blanket chokes the, the, the air from one who is caught on fire. That's quite a picture, isn't it? Similarly, as long as oxygen is present, forest fires rage, but if we could take the air away, the blaze would settle down and great tracts of land would be saved. I don't know if anyone remembers, it might be dating me a little bit, but I remember going to an IMAX theater in Edmonton and watching the fires of Kuwait. Anyone remember the fires of Kuwait IMAX theater? Remember, it was back, I think this was the back of the, the first Gulf War, right? Where, where as one country moved into Kuwait, they blew all these oil wells up and lit them on fire. And so there were just these massive towers of flames. But you know how they put those fires out? They like set off a bomb on the top because the explosion choked out the air. And all of a sudden, this towering, flaming inferno was out. There was just oil firing everywhere, right? That, that's, that's kind of what he's talking about. Love chokes out the air of sin, puts it out. May we love this way. May nothing evil be allowed to breathe for long. May we keep short counts to one another. So Peter calls us to be clear and sober-minded, to love well, and then third, to show hospitality. But we have to read the whole verse. It's really easy sometimes. Show hospitality. That sounds nice. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Oh, Sean told me I have to have people over for lunch to be nice. Maybe they'll come. Maybe I can tell them I'm busy like at one so we can get them out the door and I can get on with my own life, whatever. Show hospitality without grumbling. Now, in the, in the first century, generally speaking, when there weren't hotels or motels everywhere, so if you traveled into a town, you'd kind of go to the square and hope that someone would have a room and would take you in. A little different than here where there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds 
of hotel and motel rooms. But even though the, 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 the context has changed a little bit, this is just as, as relevant today as it was then. We live in this amazing place, and people are coming from all over the world to visit here. 10,000 hotel rooms in the Bow Valley. That's, we don't need to go to the, the uh, town square in order to hope for someone to take us in. Oh, well, if you include Canon Oscar and Fernie, those are padded stats, Clarence. People are coming all the time. Our call as residents here is to show them hospitality. And I know it's easy to skip this. I know, I know it's easy to skip this. I know that you can look around the room and say, okay, statistically, in three to five months, 25 to 30% of the people will not be living in the Bow Valley anymore. It's just so transient that people come, people go. So why open up my heart and my life to people who are just going to break it by moving away soon, right? I know that. I know that. One of the things that impressed me, I'm not sure if I want to say most, but a lot, by Trinity in 2017 when, when I was being interviewed and, frankly, we were interviewing you, is that one thing I heard from leadership and the search team was, you know, we realize that we might only have people for a short window of time, and that's okay. We're going to pour into them. We're going to invest in them. We're going to point them to Jesus so that if and when they move away, they can go to the next spot knowing more of Jesus than when they showed up here. <sighs> Come on. That's beautiful. And I think, I don't think, I know that that's something we need to work hard to recapture. I, I I think that we've slipped at this as a church. Me, me first and foremost, okay? So forgive me for that. And I know that a couple of years of, of, of COVID uncertainty and survival mode have maybe thought, okay, we'll just got to make sure we get the screens up and uh, all the things going on, and we've, we've, we've let it slip. But we need to get back to that. We need to recapture that heart of, it doesn't matter that he's only here for a season at the ski hill. We're going to love him, and he's going to go home He's going to love Jesus more than when he came, or she came, or they came, or whatever else, right? So rather than us thinking, let's just see if this family sticks before we invite them into our homes. Let's just see if, if this, this couple actually realize what it takes to live here before we invest in their lives and love them sincerely. And just do it. Just start. One pastor says the key to hospitality is just to start, just to begin. It doesn't matter if you live in an apartment, basement suite, a dorm, a house. Maybe it looks like opening up your house once a week, baking a few cookies, saying hello to someone in the elevator or walking down the street, checking up on an older neighbor, boring sugar from the next apartment. Yes, the city or our town can be a place of isolation, but it may be that through our doors all kinds will come, some who are hungry, some who are intellectually questioning a colleague who's in crisis, a student from a far-off land. That list that, that, that this pastor wrote, I've heard of all of these in the last three weeks. These, these people are here in our rooms, in our neighborhoods. He says, it may be that God's new people from the nations will sit around our table, and it may be that having shared a meal and having tasted Christ, their own table will be open for the gospel in a country that we would never reach. Now, we don't just add hospitality to our list in an effort to make converts. Look around, okay, there's a couple chairs. We need to bump the budget, Sean, whatever. Like, we're not doing it just to change 
to get numbers, but we practice hospitality because it's right. We practice hospitality because we are God's people, and he, through his goodness, has been so good to us, and so we show that goodness to others. Let me not um, suggest that, first, that I've got this figured out, and I'm doing it right all the time. Let me also not suggest that it's easy. It's hard. It's hard work. People can be messy. I'm messy. If you're honest, you're messy. We're all messy. It can be costly. Hospitality can be costly. It takes our, our time. It takes our energy. It takes finances. It, 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 people come into our space. Maybe, maybe we just think that we, we don't have enough to host others. Or it's just something that we don't have in our capacity. So let me uh, share a, a humorous but true story uh, from a pastor evangelist, E. Stanley Jones. He was preaching a number of services in the mountains of Kentucky uh, some time ago. Uh, and they, he was teaching out of a schoolhouse. And it was uh, people who were uh, quite poor or, or not as, as wealthy as maybe other places. And one evening after speaking at the schoolhouse, uh, he recounts that he, he was invited to stay with a family. Come stay in a house. Today. Great. He says this, At the schoolhouse, I was invited to stay with a man and a wife. And when I arrived at their home, I saw that there was one bed. The husband said, You take the far side. Then he got in, and then his wife. And I turned my face to the wall as they dressed, and they stepped out while I dressed. But that was real hospitality. He says, I have slept in palaces, but the hospitality of that one-bed home is the most memorable and the most appreciated. And I, I pray that our lives would be filled with the grace of hospitality. And the, the call is just start somewhere. Just start somewhere, which flows nicely into our last point of to, to just serve one another. Verse 10, Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracle of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. That's really the key to all of this, right? By the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Notice that as, as Peter gets into gifts here, he's not giving us a master list of spiritual gifts, and if you're not on that list, you're, you're, you've got to find something else or just pigeonhole yourself in here. But instead, he goes to these two just overarching categories. He starts with, with those who speak. So to those who speak, like, like I am this morning, or if you're teaching in some other context, he was reminding us that what we're doing is something that is completely beyond us. We're trying to take the very word of God and try to filter it from when it was written into our context and speak the word of God to challenge people to hear it, embrace it, repent and turn towards Jesus. And let me tell you, without the help, and without often the very significant help of the Holy Spirit, we cannot do this. I love, I've told this story more often than not, and my kids have caught on to this too. That so often the Sundays that I feel like I bomb up here, people are like, Thank you, Pastor. That was amazing. I heard you. I heard you say this, and it was so encouraging. I didn't even say that. The other week, uh, I can't remember when it was. I think it might have even been last Sunday. I came and I was just a little scattered before the service, and, and felt stressed, and, and like just had a few things going on. I don't even remember all that it was. But I asked Jaden, my son, who's 11, uh, before I was like, Jaden, can you just pray that I just like be calm and it'd be okay? And he's like, Okay, Dad. 
And he actually did out loud, which is really special for me. That's not just bragging for uh, a dad who's been prayed for by his 11-year-old, which is super special. And he just said, God, um, help dad have a good day or some, something simple, right? Like, give him a piece. And it went through the services. They went fine. He got home, and he's like, Jaden comes to me. He's like, Dad, I bet that was a really good one, wasn't it? Because you, you weren't there. I was like, you're right. It was better because I am out of the way. Second, serving. The second category, Peter actually is using a word here that is generally, generally reserved for like a household servant, okay? When you serve, he says, this is, these were the people that went into a home and took care of a house, took care of a place. Remember, as I get into this, the church is called what? The house of God. The people, people who follow Jesus are called the family of God, right? So the servants, the household servants, were the people that went into the home and made sure everything ran smoothly. See how that connects a little bit here? They gave themselves to make sure that that home environment was conducive for a healthy home life where the family could grow and the family could flourish. And they do this by the strength that God supplies. Let me ask, what are your gifts? What are they? Have you ever thought about that? What, what are the ways that, that God has, has maybe uniquely given you either a talent or an ability or a wanting to do something that can be leveraged into the role of a household servant to help the house run smooth and the family grow strong? What are your gifts? And follow-up question, where are you using them? Where, where might they be useful? This household needs you. It may look like we've got it all together, but some Sunday mornings, it's duct tape, chewing gum, and binder twine, and we get it all together, and it goes. There are lots of places for you to use your gifts here to help build this house into a place where the family grows. And if you're not sure, this is one of the most important things, I think, for me, too. If you're not sure where you're gifted, ask someone. I can't tell you how many times over the course of my life someone has said to me, Sean, I think you're good at this. You should try this. No, I am not good at that. I will not be trying that. A couple weeks later, there I am doing this thing. And wait a minute. They saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. So ask someone. Or pick something. Now, there are, full disclosure, there are some roles of getting a Sunday morning running that you can't just come up to and say, Sean, I'm going to preach next week. We can talk about that, but there, there are some qualifications for some of But no, Pick something. Try it. And don't try it just once and be like, that stunk. Try it a bunch of times. Pray about it. Even if it's like, that came out wrong. I've said before that, that one of the most, I think, one of the most significant things about a Sunday morning is even making sure there's coffee at the back. Right? For <laughs> Not just because we get here early to start things up. But I don't know about you guys, but, but I, I'm an introvert um, by nature. This was never my dream or desire to stand in front of people and talk as like a, a career or whatever. So even this morning, coffee went out. I grabbed my cup. I made a cup. And let me tell you, holding something in my hand 
is a lot more comfortable than not. And I, like, I've been here a few times. I, sh- I pr- maybe, hopefully, am comfortable here. But, but just to, to gather around a cup, that, that, that draws people in. That's, that's showing hospitality. That's showing sincere love. That, that's all these things, right? Pick somewhere. Try it a few times. And if, if it really doesn't go, fine. So, Sean, I'm not making coffee anymore. Every time I do it, it overflows. <laughs> Great. I don't want to clean up after you. We'll find you another spot, right? No problem. We'll find you another spot. But we all need to be using our gifts because the rest of us actually suffer if you aren't. You're actually like keeping something from us if you don't serve well. That's not a guilt trip. That's, that's, that's just the reality of in a community, we all need one another. As Peter prepares to wrap up this section, he is reminded and reminds us as the ultimate goal of these things. Again, this isn't a list of, okay, if, if when I die and go to the pearly gates, whatever that looks like, if I have tried to be clear-minded, loved people as earnestly as I could, shown hospitality, spent all my days serving, then Peter at the pearly gates, whatever that looks, he has to let me in because I've done these things. That's not what we're talking about here. We don't do this to try to make ourselves good. Again, let me encourage you by saying you are not good, but Jesus is good. And so we do these things in order that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, because to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to open up your word and to, I trust, uh, have heard you speak. If there's anything that I said that was not of you, I pray that you just kind of remove that from our minds. And I pray that, uh, that maybe for each of us there would be one thing or two things that you would just, Holy Spirit, just kind of you know, supernaturally sort of implant and, and keep in us, keep saying to us over the course of the day and the next few days and the week to just remind us of how we live for you. Holy Spirit, I do want to um, just kind of pray against the lie that the enemy tells us so often of uh, you're not good enough. You don't have any gifts. How could you possibly contribute? I know that I have believed that far too many times for far too long, and so I pray against that lie. I'm going to bind it up and, and, and protect us from it. Jesus, I pray that yeah, you would remind us that we are we are on the team, on the same team. We were trying to point people to you. Jesus, thank you that you came and you walked this earth. You showed us how to rightly relate to one another, to creation itself, and to God. Thank you that you were perfectly obedient to God, that you were in every way righteous and good, and yet you went to the cross and you died a criminal's death. Thank you that you took our sin, my sin, to the cross. You died that death not for you, but for me. And that when you were raised from the grave three days later, you conquered Satan's sin and death. And you have, you have said to each one of us, come to me. And you propose this great, exchange, great exchange where we where we turn to you and we, we hand you our sin and, and you give us your goodness. So I pray that you continue to be at work in our lives, revealing the areas where we need to repent and come to you, 
the things in our lives that are keeping us from you, that are keeping us from being clear-headed and sincerely loving and, and hospitable and serving well. And God, I do pray for, for us here and, and for this church and for your church that we, this would be a place where we would grow and, and be healthy and point people to you. Not so that we would look good, but Jesus, so that you would look so good. For your glory and your sake, in Jesus' name, amen.